0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I will not be doing special music, just to warn you, uh, if you're following your bulletin. Um, we were going to have it scheduled, and then uh, the plans had to change, so uh, we're just going to be flexible, so uh, unless you want me to sing in front of you, do you want that? Yeah. Hey, Angela, do you want that? Yeah. Yeah. Um you guys were so gracious last week and texting me after the Steelers game, um, so th- <laughs> thank you for that, and just to confirm, I'm not wearing any opponent's colors today, so we'll see how it goes. A um, couple quick announcements, uh, and they're important announcements, um, but I, I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. Um, so a couple months ago, I think uh, we we introduced to you guys the idea we're going to be sending a survey out to you for our 11 o'clock ministry. And we appreciate that you interacted with that material. Um, and so we we had a chance to look over the survey results. And one of the things that we're going to try is um, beginning in the middle of January, we're going to offer a second adult class downstairs in the fellowship hall. And Pastor Dustin and I are going to go teach it for probably six to eight weeks, depending on how long it takes to get through the material. But uh, we're going to offer that as another opportunity for um, you to connect with uh, some other people and, and to really um, draw our thoughts around maybe a, a topic that is more uh, life application driven. And so many of you commented that you would appreciate maybe some studies that focused on uh, life applications. So stay tuned for information. We know what we're doing. We're going to let you know in a couple of weeks uh, what that would be, uh, but that will be in the middle of January and, and we'll go for about six or eight weeks. Uh, the second thing is we're going to be doing something different next week. And anytime, yeah, I'm a creature of, of habit. So anytime something different or new is happening, I'm already feeling a little stressful. So I thought, let's find a way to make this a little more approachable. Um, We celebrate the Lord's table on the first Sunday of the even months. And so it being December uh, next week, uh, we're going to be sharing in the Lord's table. And what we wanted to do that is really different is we're going to give you guys the opportunity to share a testimony of what you're thankful for and what God's been doing in your life. Uh, Before we partake in the Lord's table. So we're going to have some microphones set up front. Uh, We're going to have the cordless mic. If you're not able to make it up front. You'd like to just share a testimony of what God's been doing. Um, We want to do that. Because at the root of the Lord's table. Is a heart of thankfulness. Um, We read in the Gospels. in, In Luke 22. That Jesus gave thanks throughout the Lord's Supper. And so we want to be able to share share together um, some of those things. And, and some of you might already be like, oh, I'm out. I'm not. <laughs> um, so if you're maybe not excited about talking in front of people... Um, If you want to email, like if you'd like to type what you're thankful for and we can have someone else read it, we'd love to do that for you as well. Just send it to me or send it to the office. Uh, There's an email address in your bulletin. Um, But while it's a new thing to do, I'm really excited for the opportunity to hear from you and to hear together uh, what you're thankful for. Uh, So just pray about that this week. Uh, let me know if you have any questions or thoughts and, and we'll be doing that. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table before the message time next Sunday, um, because if it takes an hour and a half, we'll go an hour and a half. Um, but uh, we just want to provide space for that to take place. Well, let's pray and we'll ask God's spirit to open our heart to his word. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to gather this morning. And, and as we continue in our worship of you, uh, God, we pray that your word would uh, be clear and that we would receive it well into our lives. We are grateful for your faithfulness. We are thankful for your presence. And Father, I ask that your spirit now would teach us, um, teach us what it means to, to walk with you teach us and how to love you better and more and that our faith would increase as a result of hearing your word and applying it. We are thankful for the season of Thanksgiving to spend time with loved ones and to uh, just share in the goodness and the blessings that you have provided. And as we look forward to next week, God, I, I pray that as Um, We just stir our hearts of what you have been doing and just how thankful we are for Jesus and his love that you would give us a a great time to share together uh, as a body of believers here at North Anvil. Thank you for this ministry and uh, thank you for how you are strengthening us in the faith together as one body. And we are grateful for each one that is here. And we love you and thank you. And all these things we give thanks. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. In 1805 at Buffalo Creek, New York, some Native American chiefs and warriors gathered to hear a minister from the Boston Missionary Society present the gospel. In response, Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs, responded, to the missionary he said brother we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place these people are our neighbors we are acquainted with them we will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has on them if we find it does them good if it makes them honest and if it makes them less disposed to cheat indians we will then consider again what you have said Our conduct is often a greater witness to the world than our words. Our conduct is often a greater witness to the world than our words. I mean, why would a person be open to follow Jesus if they don't see the radical positive change that Jesus actually makes in our lives? The way we live has a huge influence on those around us. Now, Peter, and ultimately God himself, challenges us to be a people who live differently because we believe in Jesus. And I have tragically seen the destruction that occurs when a person who spends years preaching the gospel to to someone or to a group of people, and and just by one action, it all goes away. Their, Their opportunity to proclaim, to herald, to be a witness of the life-changing effect that Jesus makes, just goes up in smoke because of what they are doing. They forfeit their proclamation because of a sinful choice, and they've damaged the opportunity and privilege for that person to be a credible witness of the grace of God. Now, the danger is when we come to a passage like this one in first Peter chapter two and the others that we're going to look at this morning is that there is a tendency to abuse the balance that exists between faith and what we do. And there just seems to be that great tension in the church between faith in Jesus and what we do because we have faith in Jesus. As believers who find their roots in the Protestant Reformation, we sometimes unknowingly balk at the idea that what we do matters in our relationship. And we we just say we have faith, that we believe in Jesus, and we struggle to, to really have a category in our spiritual life where, okay, we're constantly aware of our conduct and actions. And the danger is because the Protestant Reformation saw the the dangers of works righteousness in a religious system that it had created, and they preached against it. Pastors and theologians that rediscovered the written word of God, and they were serious about searching the scriptures and taking the truths that were being taught in church for granted. And as they searched, they rekindled the church's heart for the beauty of the gospel, that it's grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And the danger is that we can place so much, um, so much stock in our faith that we forget that God is working something out in us. That he wants to use us to be instruments in his hands, that he wants us to be a visible manifestation of his grace to the world. And on the other side, there's a danger that we can place too much stock in our effort. And we can think that we are saved by what we do or that we maintain our salvation by our performance because salvation is a free gift, we focus on the importance of faith rather than what we do. And so you get a sense of that tension that exists between faith and works. But what I want you to see this morning is that faith and works can mutually exist together in the heart of the child of God. In fact, they should mutually exist. It shouldn't be all one or all the other. That we are a people who are called by God to have a relationship with His Son on the basis of faith. That's where it starts. Faith alone and Christ alone. And that faith changes who we are, which causes our conduct to be different. See, it's not just about having faith in Jesus; that He is changing our eternal destiny. But it's having faith in Jesus because in reality, Jesus came to save us now. That where we are now is broken and that we are never able to be who God wants us to be apart from Christ. And as we join him in a relationship based on faith, God begins working out his salvation in our lives. And we should live differently. There should be a notable difference in those who love Jesus. And that's what Peter is talking about when we approach 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. It comes at a crucial time in this letter. Now we're going to look at two verses, verses 11 and 12, and in our English Bibles there are two sentences, but in the original Greek language it's one sentence. Um, If you're a grammar nerd and maybe some of you out there are and you love, you know, how sentence structures are put together and punctuation and you can define what a subject and a predicate is and a propositional statement and all those things. And you love that and you you feed off of it. you, You would have hated living in the first century world because they just had run on after run on after run on sentence. I mean, it was just one big, long thought. That would often uh, be found throughout most of their writings. So what we're going to do as we look at this, these two verses, which is really one sentence is verse 11 is the negative side of what Peter is saying. And and, and verse 12 is the positive side of what he is saying. And so if you want to just put symbols around verse 11, put a negative or a minus sign and around verse 12, put a plus sign. And you might need to say what they are because years from now, when you look back, you might think, why did I write that? But that's really what Paul or Peter is saying. Let's approach the balance of faith and works from a negative perspective as a warning. And let's look at the balance of faith and works from the positive side of what we should be doing, how it relates together. And so in verse 11, Peter begins and he writes, Beloved. And just for a second, uh, Levi, I'm going to need you to pay attention because for some reason... All of my highlights that cue me in didn't make it into my sermon. So if you hear me say something that's written down, put it on the screen. And parents, that's a surefire way to make sure that your kids are paying attention for your sermon. So, so Peter says, Beloved. Is there any better word to follow than the word beloved after you read verse 10? When Peter finished that, that statement on describing who we are in the church as this peculiar people, this special people, he says, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like, just think about that. We were once not a people. Now we're a people. We had not received mercy. Now we receive mercy. And the next thing that Peter says to these people that have been radically changed through faith in Jesus Christ, who were foreign, who were far off, who were considered unrighteous in God's eyes, who through faith in God's son have been brought into that relationship with God. Peter then says, beloved. Now I don't know if that really gets you excited in your response about who you are in Christ. But that word beloved is important. It's special. These privileged people, people like us who have been born again through faith in Jesus, are called the beloved of God. You can translate the word beloved this way. Dearly loved ones of God. Like that's how God sees you. As dearly loved ones. And so before we go too far. Know who you are. As a child of God. You are his beloved. Know who you are. You're beloved. You're precious. You're something. Special to God. In a world. That is crowding in to confuse you on who you are and what your identity is and what your purpose is and why you're here. As a child of God, you need to know first and foremost that you are beloved in God's eyes. That He loves you far more than you could ever even comprehend And that you are special and placed in his family in a unique way for his glory. And so Peter says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And you sense the insistence in Peter's pen. He's writing to the scattered people of Asia Minor. The provinces that were mentioned in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 1. And he's writing to these people who have come to faith in Jesus. And, he, and he's saying to them, you don't belong here. You're not home yet. You are just making your way through. And he says, I urge you. And you sense the, the urgency in what Peter is saying. He's imploring them. He begs them to consider what their activity should not be. And consider that thought. As an alien and as a stranger, you're not home yet. You're not home. Your identity is tethered to heaven, it's not tethered to this earth. We're not to find our identity in the things of this world, in the philosophies of this world, in the agendas of this world. We're not to find our identity because a TV show, a song, a music video, whatever says, this is how you should be. We find our identity because we are locked into a loving relationship with the creator of the universe. And whatever he says is for us, that is what is for us. And he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now, you may be familiar with this world because of Jesus. I guess it's not there. You may be familiar with this world because of Jesus. But the world should be strange to you. You may be familiar because this is the world you live in. This is what you see. This is what's normal to you. But the world should be strange to you. Better said, you should be strange to it. You don't belong. I don't belong. We're headed somewhere else. And it's far better than what's here. And so Peter calls them to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Now, due to our status as beloved aliens and strangers, we should refuse the appeal to indulge in things that are contrary to God's will for us. Now, one commentator noted on this verse, he says, The knowledge that they do not belong does not lead to withdrawal, but to, but to their taking their standards of behavior, not from the culture in which they live, but from their home culture of heaven so that their life always fits the place they are headed to rather than their temporary lodging in this world like there's no social media in heaven and praise god for that right but there's no cultural norms being sent through tiktok or instagram from heaven right this is the social media of heaven This is the word that God wants to hear from or wants us to hear from him. This is the guidance that makes us different in a fallen world. And that means we must know what the standards of conduct are of our heavenly home. What does God want from us? Now, that seems to be the great spiritual question that mankind is seeking For the believer, it's simple. God wants his children to forsake self for the sake of his glory. God wants us to forsake self for the sake of his glory. In a summary sentence, Peter says abstain. Now that word abstain also means be distant. Be far away from. Don't be close to what? Fleshly lusts. And fleshly lust isn't just like some kind of you know all-encompassing sexual thing because that's kind of how we we are trained to think of it in in our current culture. You no, know, fleshly lust are anything that is in this world that we long for in our flesh, the appetites of our flesh, like anything that we think is good for us that affects us on the outside. Now, what Peter's going to do after verse 12 and beginning in verse 13 and following is he's going to spend the rest of his letter showing us practical ways that we can abstain from the flesh. So he sets this summary statement in a negative way first. He says, I urge you to abstain. And then he says in verse 12, now this is how I want you to keep your behavior excellent. But then moving forward, he's going to say, I'm going to give you examples, because if you're reading this letter and you're wondering, how do I do this? Let me show you practical ways that you can do this. And and we're not going to get to it next week because we're going to begin a quick kind of four week Christmas series in in Hebrews chapter one uh, next week. But when we get back together in January, the first message that you're going to hear about this practical change that should should exist is our response to civil government. Oh, boy. Some of you can't wait. I can't wait to preach it. Um, But that's really where he goes with it. And so abstain from fleshly lusts to abstain from the flesh means that we refrain from acting upon the impulses or desires that are in our flesh. Now, some of you just went through Black Friday shopping, right? And it's like, oh, we need that. Got to have that. And it's like, do you do you really need that? Do you really got to have that? Or is it because the advertisement said, this is a great deal. You should have this. You deserve this. All those things. As heavenly people who have a new nature, we must stop feeding the desires of our sinful flesh. Listen, in a severe way, jails are full of people who could not stop feeding their sinful flesh, their fleshly desires at a most basic level. Fleshly lusts are those things that cause us to be consumers. But not consumers of the world, consumers of each other. See, if we're focused on ourselves, we look at other people as what can I get out of them for my good? How can I be gratified? How can I use others for my benefit? But the beloved of God are to be a people who seek the benefit of others before their own. And in this way, we follow the example of Jesus who selflessly served others for their good. Jesus was completely selfless in everything that he did on this earth. And the very act of, of his sacrificial death. The king that did not deserve to die shows us that Jesus was willing to lay down his life for those who did not deserve it. And the New Testament tells us again and again, be like him. Be like Jesus. In your attitudes, in your motives, and in your actions. And what's interesting is what Peter says is the outcome of indulging fleshly lusts. See, in my mind, it seems logical that fleshly lusts affect the flesh. Like, it just seems like, okay, the things I do on the outside affect the things on the outside. But look at what Peter says in verse 11. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against not the flesh, but the soul. See, There is always a cost when we indulge the flesh. And Peter sees the cost far too great. When we indulge the flesh, there is always a spiritual cost. If that's the one thing that you get this morning, I hope you get other things. But get this every time. You indulge the flesh. You are affecting your soul spiritually. You can't get away from it. You can't excuse it away. There is a relationship between what we do in the body and what happens in our soul. And if you've seen this happen, right, it doesn't always happen overnight. It's not just one day a person is headed down this road and the next day they're completely over here. Often the cost is subtle and the steps are subtle. But as people begin to drift away from the truth, it's because they've made fleshly choices, wanting to serve themselves, excusing it and saying, it's no big deal. God wants me to be happy And with each one of those steps, it, they are affecting their soul little bit by little bit by little bit to the point where they begin drifting away from the truth of who they are to be as the beloved of God in a relationship with God through faith in His Son. And there's a whole troubling trend and it's not a cultural trend. It's happening in churches by and large. And it's called deconstruction. I don't know if you've read anything about it. I don't know if you know much about it. But there's this whole trend today of people that grew up in churches. And now they think that they are smarter than God. And they begin deconstructing their faith. And, and what they say is, I'm trying to get rid of all the excess just so I can find God. And so what do they begin doing? They begin saying, well, part of the excess is I can't believe the Bible is credible. So they stop listening to the word of God. Then they begin to say, well, you know, the church is really a messed up place because there's a lot of chaos that happens there. So, you know, for me to have a relationship with God, it's just going to be me and God. I don't need the church. And they begin tearing apart these foundational truths in the pursuit of thinking that they know better. But really, all, with, all they're doing is feeding their flesh. Because what they're coming up against is, are the things that hurt them, that cause them to, to need to change spiritually. And, and they're like, yeah, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like anyone telling me what to do, even God. And and they just want to have this friendly relationship with God where he just approves approves of everything that they do. And by and large, it's a big deal. There are a lot of people that are in this process of deconstruction. And we need to be praying that the truth of the gospel keeps penetrating their hearts. And we keep bringing people back to the sufficiency of scripture. Because there's no other way that we can find guidance for this life and we need to keep celebrating the wonderful crazy beautiful dynamic of the church because there's no other community this side of heaven that we are called to be a part of where we can celebrate God's faithfulness and goodness in the way that we do are we perfect no we're not perfect but boy (laughs) <laughs> We're a place where grace and mercy are found. Every, everything that we do to indulge the the flesh costs us spiritually. And, and Peter says, "It wages war." That phrase "wage war" means to serve as a soldier. There is no such thing as a momentary or harmless, innocent pursuit of the flesh. Every pursuit of the flesh inflicts harm. It is attacking, making us spiritually weak and spiritually ineffective. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. But positively, this is what Peter says. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter wants us to live with purpose. He wants us to stay on track. He wants us to have spiritually productive lives. God isn't trying to be some kind of kill joy in our lives, meaning that He doesn't want us to enjoy life or have fun. But as aliens and strangers, is there anyone or anything else that can give us true joy like God does? I mean think about that. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. Is there anyone or anything else that can give us the kind of joy that God gives to His children? I don't think so. I don't think there is anything. I don't think the most safe, loving relationship this side of heaven can give you the kind of joy that God can give. I don't think the best experience and the, the most amazing event. You know, and, and, and that's some of the problem that some of you have in life, right? You're holding out. Like, if I go on this trip and we do this thing, that will help me. Or I'll save all of my life so that I can get this thing, and that will be the thing. It doesn't work. None of it will. You can have the most loving spouse, the greatest family, the best Thanksgiving dinner ever. It will never give you the joy that can only come through having faith in Jesus Christ. That is what works. Now, when you are aligned to God through faith in his son, God does an amazing thing. He reorders those relationships so that you can be a person that pours into people. And that will affect those relationships. And God in his glory will give you the opportunity to celebrate him. Some of you are doing this right now. Well, not right now. Some of you on the live stream are doing this right now, sitting in your tree stand, watching God's creation, watching the deer come in. Right. And, and you say, wow, what a gift that God has given in the beauty of creation. Right. And you celebrate God's faithfulness. But if you build your life around your hunting season and you have a terrible hunting season and you have no joy as a result of it. Well, it just really shows you what you were looking to get out of it in the first place. But if you look at it as an opportunity to see the beauty of the magnificent creation that God has given and you can give him praise for it. Boy, that's that's joy. That's a win. Now that I've offended all of our hunters here. Um, God, who is the great lover of your soul, knows what is best for you. He sure does. And so Peter positively says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Your conduct matters to God and it matters to those around you. It's a witness to the persecuted aliens from the provinces of Asia Minor. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent. Right? Right? He doesn't say, keep your behavior excellent to those who treat you nice. That wasn't the experience of these aliens that were passing through. They were being persecuted severely for their faith in Jesus. They had been rejected by the people that were in their family. They had been rejected in the homes that they grew up in. They were rejected in the communities that they once found their safety in. Because they found life in Jesus, the unbelieving world then turned against them. And what Peter says to them is keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among those who are persecuting you. That's hard, right? To not repay evil for evil. To not complain or combat those who seek to bring you down because you love Jesus. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. And that was a huge thing. The first century world viewed the early church and these people that believed in a resurrected man as a troubling group of uh, people that were going to overthrow the empire. That were going to make trouble in their communities and proselytizing people and bringing them into this kind of weird relationship with this raised dead man. So in the thing in which they slander you as the evildoers, they may, they may because of your good deeds... As they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Our conduct should be a credible witness to who we have trusted in. When the believer rises above those who persecute them, they give credible witness to the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And don't we live in a world that, I mean, it's not just ambivalent to the things of God, it attacks the things of God. Don't we live in a world that Makes it a point to point out just how strange and terrible it is to follow Jesus? Doesn't that infuriate you? It infuriates me. I hate it. I hate living in a world where the headlines are just how terrible Christians are and people of faith are in God. And just how terrible it is to stand for the things that God stands for. And that you're some kind of terrorist if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and believe that God honors life and that God respects creation. And that you're some kind of heretic that is spewing lies that wants to destroy people. By saying that there is faith in no other person than in Jesus Christ. I hate that. I hate living in a world that is constantly pressing against what God values. And I want to retaliate. I want to get in the arguments. I want to point fingers. I want to bring down the fire of hell on people that, uh, that disagree with God. I do. In my flesh. And what does Peter say? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. If you want to look for a mark of maturity in your life, if you want to like be able to take the step back and say, Okay, God, help me to see how you're working in my life. Look for the ways that God is changing you when you come up against persecution and how you respond to that persecution. How you respond to people that say obviously blatant things about who God is and who His people are. If you find yourself wanting to dig in And have the argument. Ask God for the grace to be able to help you to rise above. To not repay evil for evil. But by your conduct, by your good deeds. The haters of God will observe what you do and how you do it. And what will they do? They will give glory to God. What we do matters. Peter urges his readers and us to give our critics, no justifiable cause for slander. If we obey, the only thing that their slanderers would be able to do is give a good testimony to God. We don't want unbelieving people to stand before God and they will stand before God and say to them, well, you know, God, the people that I know that said that they loved you, man, they were terrible. They were a hot mess. They fought all the time. They pointed fingers all the time. They never prayed. They never did anything other than to complain at just how terrible I am. We don't want them to do that. We want them to be able to stand before their Creator and say, man, I can't believe it, Lord. I blew it. Because the people that I saw that loved you, they loved me. They prayed. They encouraged me. They didn't fight with me. They didn't complain about me. They didn't point fingers towards me. But by our conduct, our good deeds, as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, Peter says this will happen in the day of visitation. This day is not when the Lord returns in the clouds for us, the church. It's not the rapture. It's not the time when the church is called up to be with God in heaven. Now, the day of visitation is the day when unbelievers, who are the people that Peter is talking about in the context, will stand before God at their final judgment, the great white throne, at the end of the book of Revelation. In that day, they will bow before the Lord and they will glorify Him. Don't miss that. Even unbelievers will be resurrected in the last day. They will be. People don't die in unbelief and spend eternity in hell. People die in unbelief and they go to judgment where they are separated from God. And then they are resurrected at the general resurrection. And they will stand before a holy God, their creator. And if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, they are then sent to the eternal fire forever. Paul says in Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess. People today that are living in unbelief and dying in unbelief will stand before God and confess that Jesus is Lord when they see him. They will. We want them through our conduct to see the change that Christ makes. And have a life change as a result of the grace that God shows. The conflict in society is won not by aggressive behavior, but by good conduct or good works. Peter's vision is that the exemplary behavior of Christians will change the minds of their accusers and in effect overcome evil with good. Good works matter. What we do matters. The New Testament has, places great value in the place that works have in the believer's life. Let me let's just walk through a few verses that talk about this. Ephesians two ten. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So, right, Ephesians two eight and nine says that it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of works. But in verse ten, Paul says but works are still important because before the foundations of the world, God prepared what the works would be that you would walk through so that when you are saved, there's a plan for your life. And he says here, walk in those works. Titus 2.7. Paul says to Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. We read in Titus 2.14. Speaking of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. People that are zealous, that are excited, that look for the opportunity. You know what zealous people do, right? They're like, hey, what good thing am I going to do today for the kingdom? They're not passive people that sit back and say, you know, if it kind of finds its way in front of me, I'll do it. But they look for opportunities. We've been saved to be zealous people for good works, to look for opportunities to model the grace of God. In Titus 3.8, Paul says the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people and then finally or not exhaustively finally but in James chapter 2 James says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So don't be a foolish person. Don't be a person that says, you know what? I believe in Jesus. That's all that matters. And and just keep living for yourself in this world. No, say this. Because I love Jesus, because he has radically changed my heart, because he has forgiven my sin, because he has given his spirit to me, because I am set in a new trajectory to my heavenly home. I will look for opportunities to serve people by what I do for the glory of God. Jesus himself called his disciples to live a life of godly conduct. In the same way, he said in Matthew five, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Church, don't lose sight on the fact that the gospel not only changes us inwardly, but it also changes what we do. And God changes what we do on the outside so that we can give credible witness of what he has done on the inside. May God richly bless our lives as we commit ourselves to to give great witness of His glory through our conduct. Beloved, shine the light of Jesus so that this world will praise God for His amazing grace. Let's pray.